Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm joined by John Ellidge, Editor of City Metric and Stephen Bush, Editor of the Staggers, to talk about the centrepiece of the Tory manifesto, a new right to buy policy. Then Stephen and I catch up on what he found out on the campaign trail in Wales. The centrepiece of the Tory manifesto launch this week was a promise to extend right to buy to tenants of housing association homes. John Ellidge, our editor of Citrimetric, joins us to tell us why he thinks it's a bad idea. And also in the studio, I call it studio, it's a broom cupboard, is Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers. John, first of all, tell us uh, about the policy, the original policy, the, the classic right to buy in the 1980s. Very popular, um, Thatcher's dream of a home property owning democracy. What were the downsides of it? Well, it was an incredibly popular policy, as you say, because for you know quite clear political reasons that if basically giving homes to tenants at a discount is going to be popular with those tenants, um, so they're not only going to be feeling better disposed towards the government that did this, they're also you know in the long term they become homeowners and homeowners are disproportionately likely to vote conservative, um, and then there's the theoretical arguments that it's it's aspirational. It's kind of helping people out who, who who previously would have found it difficult to get on the housing ladder. Perhaps it's kind of giving them something back. So it's it's really not hard to see why the original was so popular, or you know, why why the Conservatives um, in a sort of pre-election panic might uh, might, might maybe want to revive it. Um, however, there was a pretty significant downside, which is that the money that was brought in by the the sales. There was actually a rule, I think, that you not only was it not spent on uh, replacement housing stock, there was actually a rule that said you couldn't spend it on replacement housing stock. So it undermined the, the social housing sector. That was probably fine in the 1980s. Partly you know, the Conservatives are ideologically against social housing, so they weren't too bothered. But also in the 1980s, it looked like we had enough housing. Now it's very clear that we don't have enough housing and the sort of collapse in public sector house building rates that, that followed right to buy is a major contributor to that. So it's, um, except from the sort of the most nakedly political uh, stance, it's really difficult to see why the Conservatives would go back to this policy. One of the things I find most striking is the fact that I think that a third of properties bought under right to buy are now rented out. So what you've effectively done is you've given people a productive asset rather than a home in those cases, which is one of the things that we always talk about in housing policy. We've been encouraged to kind of more and more see our homes as something in which you invest value. It's a sort of safe haven for your stock rather than, or, you know, or something that you can become a a renter out to other people and make a a profit from. Yeah, indeed. I mean, if you imagine someone's living in a 
a, a free bed housing association property in in London would probably set you back, you know, six hundred thousand pounds potentially. That's that's like that's almost sort of winning the lottery levels. If you kind of are basically being given that at a seventy percent discount, and you can kind of you can totally see people thinking, well, this is brilliant. Now I'm going to sort of move to the seaside, like I always wanted to, or something. And it ends up in the hands of a buy-to-let investor. Um, there are a number of there. Are, there are so many horrible things about this policy that I really, I almost don't know where to begin. But I think one of the one of the strangest aspects of it is that, unlike council properties, housing association properties are not actually owned by the state. Well, this is something I wanted to pick up because the, it's very hard to order a non-profit organisation that is an independent organisation to sell off. Probably, possibly in contravention of its its charter, essentially, sell off stuff at below market rates, isn't it? I mean, how are they? What mechanism is are they going to physically force housing associations to do this by? Nobody seems clear at this point. Last time I looked into this, uh, the National Housing Federation, which is the body that represents housing associations, said they had absolutely no idea. Um, I think the consensus is that you know the the government has enough sort of financial and political levers, they will be able to find a way of doing this. But there will be a lot of legal wrangling. There's going to be there's going to be bills that come attached to that. The housing associations have already said they're going to fight this in the courts. Um, there are estimates for the cost of this policy uh, running into the billions. And it's just a bit mystifying that we do have an enormous housing crisis in this country. If you're going to spend billions on housing, why would you spend it on this as opposed to, you know, Say a, building, a new building program? More, building, building more, more bloody, bloody houses. houses. Yeah. Uh, TM, and I think that's probably 50p I have to put in your kind of um, copyright that's box it. there. Um, Stephen, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the politics of this this policy. It was received as if by, kind of by the political class as a sort of, ah, oh, oh, Margaret Thatcher, you know, kind of choirs of angels swelling around. You know, this is this is this is kind of a... For people who really love Margaret Thatcher, this was a kind of a, a like a weepy moment, like a sort of nostalgic concert, wasn't it? But do you think it's actually a policy that still com- commands widespread support in any particular section of society? Mm. Apart from people who benefit from it directly, who I imagine are probably pretty pro. I think the thing is, it's not, I mean, it's not just the Margaret Thatcher. I think, you know, it, it is important not to underestimate the value of something which did allow people who otherwise would have been stuck on a waiting list for years going, I'd quite like to downsize and move somewhere sunny now I've got old having the ability to buy up and then sell and be able to move to the coast in their twilight years is not a small thing and is actually something that if you do it in a sort of a more progressive way so you sell it as a leasehold so it can own yeah we wouldn't let someone buy a business and then go I'll only pay business rates instead of rent ka-ching I'll live in this house and we don't do that for for a variety of reasons so there are important policy leaves which are different, but I think in the same way that in a certain time you can always get a cheer in a Labour crowd by going, who's NHS, our NHS. Right to buy is an applause line for the Conservatives because they understand it as a time when they took a large chunk of Labour's base, they won seats that they had never won before and they would never have expected to win, and um, and people are still grateful. You know, there, you know, people of a certain age will go... Yeah, thank goodness for Maggie Thatcher. I was able to buy my house because of her. My gran was able to move out and go to Clacton, South End, because of her. The big difference is that, exactly as John says, the housing need is completely different for now. We forget that even in the late 90s, the Labour government was knocking down condemned council housing that no one wanted and renovating its existing stock. This idea that, uh, you know, a less than a decade old everyone would be going, oh God, we need more social mm. housing, was completely remote. Yeah, it is a solution to a problem of the 1980s. 
the slightly sinister element of it with the housing association suing is the government is also gently undermining judicial review. Mm. So they are actually making it much harder for the housing associations to go, actually, no, you can't take this from me. Well, I'm sure this is something that we'll come back to as housing is one of the issues I know that most uh, exercises the New Statesman office. But for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to John and Stephen. I'm joined by Staggers editor Stephen Bush, who has recently returned from four days on the campaign trail in Wales. Stephen, first of all, so tell us where you went, first of all, and then what you found. Um, so I, I went on a, a fairly circuitous. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Route and then I took took the train until I crossed the border. Then I got off at Newport and talked to some people. Took it a bit further, stopped at Cardiff, went round. They have um, you know, Cardiff. You know, we think of Wales as a Labour stronghold, but Cardiff actually is full of sort of various marginals. Cardiff North, which has backed the winner in every election since the year dot. Cardiff Central, which is one of those wonderfully volatile seats. And since 1992, basically every major party's had a go and is uh, now a straight fight between a very well-dug-in Liberal and a Labour campaign came. And then the Vale of Glamorgan, which is mainly the Vale itself and uh, and Barry Island of uh, Gavin and Stacey's name. I've been to Barry Island um, as a child. That's yeah. what we did, because I grew up in Worcester, which is not Wales, obviously, but you know we can see Wales from where we are. Um, and where else did you go? And uh, then I took the train down to Anglesey. Uh, with, or I'm not going to try and pronounce it by its proper name. I'm really sorry to all of our Welsh listeners. Uh, which is again a fascinating seat because it is a it is notionally a Labour-plied Cymru marginal. But the interesting third force there is UKIP because they are taking away white working class votes from Labour. So Plaid Cymru could have a could actually have a fairly bad, bad night in terms of the popular vote around Wales, but still pick up a seat mm. if some of that doesn't go back to Labour. And how well generally are UKIP doing in Wales? Yeah, really well, actually. Um, they have this slight problem, that, yeah, as one sort of Welsh Conservative put it to me, they're taking our activists, but they're taking Labour's votes. And that means in some places their activists and their voters are not geographically convenient for them. Uh, but they are... Yeah, they they actually have a fairly serious strategy on the ground. They're building sort of population centres because in the Welsh elections, because it's a list system, yeah, you don't need to worry about wasted votes. You can just rack up as many votes in your core areas. And I suspect that a lot of safe Labour seats in Wales will have a strong UKIP presence in second. And in some places, um, yeah, you will get a sort of eating away of the Labour vote because... The interesting thing in Wales, I talked to Roger Scully, who is the expert on on Welsh politics and Welsh voting behaviour. People who live in sort of Essex or Chingford, who sort of switched to the Conservatives in the 80s, that never really happened in Wales. But that is the demographic which is most in, inclined to vote for UKIP now. So basically what's happening in Wales now is that bit of the Labour vote, which is actually quite socially conservative, you know, has fairly um, strong views about benefit claimants, mm. is now starting to be won over by another party, but it's not the Conservatives, it's UK. That's interesting. And then the other question that kind of we, we always come to when we talk about Welsh politics is 
we're looking at an election that is, if anything, you know, the big surprise for most people has been the rise of Scottish nationalism, the in- incredible surge in support for the SNP, both in terms of their activist base and in terms of the fact that now most projections putting them on around 50 seats in Scotland. Plaid Cymru, I think it's fair to say, won't, this is not the Plaid moment. As you say, they might pick up an extra seat, but why is there less um, allure for, for Plaid Cymru than there is for the SNP? I mean, it's a combination of factors. The interesting thing is, in the first elections to the devolved parliament, Plaid actually did better than the SNP. Uh, they got a higher vote, share of the vote. They've been unluckier in their opponents. The Welsh Labour Party has, with the exception of Alan Michael there, the first leader in Wales, has been very good at defining itself as individually Welsh. Um, you know, Carwin Jones, in the words of one inside, has wrapped himself in the flag, which sort of means that Plaid Cymru doesn't have that sort of cultural nationalism, that civic nationalism the SNP has. They're sort of stuck with the the language and the economy. The economy, you know, the Welsh economy is is not an argument you want to be making if you're arguing for independence. And the language, they sort of have two disadvantages. One, it is a much less visceral um, political dividing line than it once was. Um, You know, their plies activists are no longer the subject of sort of prejudice or attacks because of the language and sort of a and is that because that's been sort of the uh, I mean I think there's been a kind of movement by the bourgeoisie to really reclaim the language it's become a kind of a very intellectual pursuit as well as a, as a grassroots movement and it has been I mean there have been huge amounts of money has been spent on initiatives and putting signage and and everything being I mean that's has that just sort of essentially then diffused that as a as a nationalist argument yeah I think so in another way, I'm about to put my head in the lion's mouth here. I think their big problem as a movement is one, a lot of people I spoke to talked about them in the same way that um, sort of non-practicing or reformed Jews uh, in the area I'm from talk about the Orthodox community in Stoke Newington. They don't want to be like them. They don't want to have to sort of get into that fairly serious question. But they're very glad that they're there. But the problem is, it's quite difficult to build a movement out if people are glad and you're there but don't want to be like you and also because they do have legitimate grievances the north of wales is yeah it's just i mean getting to it via public transport was yeah it was yeah like crossing the arctic Mm. yeah it is completely cut off from uh, the prosperous south and more importantly is cut off from places like chester and chester and liverpool which really should be the engines of growth for the north of wales but because those are concrete grievances, mm. if you can't build out from a concrete grievance because you don't share it, you're sort of stuck as a political party. This, because the SNP's grievance is sort of, you know, you can kind of pick. There's sort of something for everyone there. They have that capacity to be a broad movement. In That's interesting. So, yeah, the idea that there isn't a moat, you know, there aren't good motorway links in is is in some ways a much more tangible thing you think you'd be able to build a campaign around but because it only affects people who don't have the motorway it's not that pressing an issue to people in Cardiff I suppose that's the problem isn't it it's not something that everybody can feel that they can sign up and sort of be subsumed in do you foresee any surprises in Wales on election night a couple Cardiff Central which on paper is one of the easiest Labour pickups student facing you know young population etc etc the Liberals look very well dug in there. Uh, they are privately very bullish. Labour are privately very pessimistic about it. Whereas the veil, which uh, on paper, you know, yeah, if it was in England, would be a safe Tory seat. It's a majority of six of uh, six thousand, I think. So it's yeah, it's one of the more ambitious targets. Labour is backing it very hard in terms of resources, and they are competing even in sort of the most affluent parts of the seat. Uh, 
otherwise, I think, you know, Anglesey is one to watch. Labour ought not to have any difficulty there, but it's you can it's easy to see how Plaid will come through the middle. Um I think the main thing to watch and the big trend, regardless of who ends up in office in terms of how the Labour Parliamentary Party thinks about things, will be these UKIP second places throughout the North, throughout Wales. Um, you will have Labour MPs who it will probably be a distant second, but psychologically will feel that, you know, these Eurosceptic anti-immigration party are, you know, right behind their heels. And that will be the big change in the mentality of the Labour Party. Thank you very much, Stephen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Music.